The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 5, verses 16 to 23. Please open your Bibles to that passage, John 5, 16 to 23. If you're using a pew Bible, the verse is found on page 75 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I too am working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We do come to, to one of the more joyful parts of, of our gathering and our worship together this morning, which is the opportunity that we have to behold the glory of God shining from the face of Jesus Christ. And uh, if, you, if you don't get anything else about what we're looking at in this passage in John chapter 5, you need to understand that, that that's at the heart of it. It's the glory of God that's been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And the question is for each one of us whether we've been given eyes to see that or not. Have we been given ears to hear the glory of God that's revealed in Christ or are our ears still stopped up to the message that the Father has made known to us regarding his Son? Um, Eternity hinges upon how we answer that question, right? Whether we have eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of Christ, or whether we do not. So we're coming back into John chapter 5, and this is part 2 of That You May Marvel. I hope that we're not going into a part 3. I I really am feeling the need to pick up the pace a little bit in John, or we're never going to get out of the book, which I'm okay with, but I don't want you feeling bogged down in our study and getting bored with what we're looking at. I I hope that's not the case. But the title, as you know, it comes from John chapter 5, verse 20, where uh, we find exactly what the Father wants from each one of us in relation to what he has revealed through Jesus Christ. What does God want from us as we look at Jesus? Well, in John chapter 5, verse 20, that's made very clear. The Father wants us to marvel at what we see revealed in him. Uh, to glory in him, to be astounded by what we see in Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at, I hope, together this morning. Um, this, this astounding revelation of God that's given to us in Jesus Christ. 
As I said last week, that's the foundation of the entire Christian life, and that's the fountain out of which everything in the Christian life ought to flow. You're either marveling at Jesus and then moving forward in love to serve him, or you're caught up in some legalistic notion of what it means to be a Christian. You're living a half-baked Christian life, right? This, this empty form of religion that doesn't have the power of Christ at work within it. That comes through, through beholding and marveling over Jesus Christ. That's a work that none of us can do to ourselves. And so in light of that, why don't we pray and ask God to help us so that we would marvel over what we see in Jesus. Father, we do come before you asking that you would cause your name to be hallowed in each one of our hearts this morning. Lord, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would remove calluses that may have formed over time, that you would renew within us an experience of your grace and a perception of the glory that you've given us and you've revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us joy in Jesus' name, that you would help us behold the wonder of, and the glory of what you have shown to us in him. Don't let us leave this room unchanged by what your word presents to us this morning. God, affect, affect a change in each one of us to the end that Christ would be magnified in us and through us, that we would glory in you, we would worship your holy name, and that you would be exalted among us. Lord, we ask for this grace and we pray for it in the name of Jesus Christ because he is worthy of that. Amen. All right, just a parenthesis here at the beginning. Justin, I'm glad I was having the effect that, uh, that I've had on you at the, at the wedding the other night. You kept giving parentheses in your, in your, uh, in your talk. I, I'm very thankful that that's rubbed off on you. Um, I have not said this in a long time, and this has nothing to do with the message that, that I'm about to try to preach. Um, I haven't said it in a long time because I don't want this to become some kind of legalistic practice among us at Oak Ridge. But Brian, one day I'm going to preach that sermon on the amen in the congregation and what it actually means and what it communicates. Um, you know, this is not a spectator moment in the Christian life when you come here on Sunday mornings. This is not the Seth show. <laughs> Goodness, if it's, if it's about what I'm doing or James is doing or what anyone else is doing in presenting to you some kind of dynamic show that catches up your heart and whatever's going on, then, then you're here for the wrong reasons and our church is not growing in accord with the will of God. Amen. When I'm praying, I don't mean this to be snarky or, or a rebuke or anything like that as, as, as much as I mean it to be an encouragement. When I'm up here praying, I hope that your heart is praying as well. It's not about you just listening to what I'm saying to God. It's about us joining together with one heart and one mind and lifting up one prayer together unto God. And the way we signify the fact that we're all joined together in that prayer is through the communal expression of the amen. You say amen at the end of a prayer to show your agreement with it and to express to God the fact that your heart was joined with your brother or your sister in the prayer that he or she just offered. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I'm Minnesotan, and I do that in my heart. I don't do that 
outwardly. Now, I, I understand that. I understand that. But I would challenge you to look into Scripture and see how expressive and outward God calls the amen to come out of his people. Right? It's like, it's like me saying in a store, it was my, it's in my, in my heart I'm preaching the gospel to that person in front of me. I really am. Well, I, I might be thinking through how to do that, but I don't actually express the preaching of the gospel until I open my mouth and I start communicating it with words in a way similar to that. Express your amen unto the Lord. Amen? amen. Uh, I know you guys put up with me. But... Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You guys do a better job of putting up with me than I do myself. So uh, praise the Lord for grace. All right. So we remember what we've looked at in John 5, where we're at so far. Um, last week we were looking at verse 18 where the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Um, verse 16 tells us that they were already seeking to kill Jesus because of what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. They viewed what he did on the Sabbath as making him guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And we looked at, uh, a number of weeks ago, we looked at the Old Testament law that demanded the death penalty for someone who dishonored God by breaking the Sabbath. Now in verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus it says in that text, because adding to the Sabbath issue, Jesus had just made a claim to be equal with God. Now that's what we saw in verse 17, where Jesus called God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying, or ex exactly what he was saying when he said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. In one sense, they understood exactly what he was saying. He was making a claim to deity. And this issue is actually going to come up again in the Gospel of John. We'll see it again in John chapter 10. For example, in verse 33, where, where after Jesus says, I and my father are one, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. Now, why were they going to stone him? Well, Jesus says, for what good work do you stone me? For what good work that I've done do you seek to kill me? And the Jews look back at him and say, it's not for a good work that you've done that we're trying to kill you, but because you, being a man, make yourself God. That was the issue. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying on one level when he made these statements claiming to be equal with God. However, even though they understood the essence of what he was getting at, they didn't fully understand what Jesus meant by what he said. So in verse 18, the Jews are reacting to Jesus' claim to be equal with God, but Jesus' response in the rest of this chapter shows us that they didn't accurately understand what he was saying. So they understood it on one level, but they didn't understand it the way he meant it. Does that make sense? So from what Jesus says in verses 19 to 30, it's clear that the Jews took his claim of being equal with God as a statement that threatened monotheism. You understand what monotheism is. It's belief in one God, right? It's the bedrock of the confession of faith of the Jew, right? This is, this is at the heart of, of all true saving faith 
in, in the Old Testament as revealed from God to the Israelites. It's in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? This, this one God-centered worship that was very clearly and abundantly communicated to the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And when the Jews heard Jesus make this claim of equality with God, they interpreted that statement as being a threat to monotheism. As if Jesus were saying, God is God, and I am God as well, right alongside of him. In other words, it's a, they understood Jesus to be claiming to be God in an autonomous way. saying that he existed as God autonomously alongside the Father. And we would affirm with that understanding that if that is what Jesus had intended to say, it would indeed be blasphemous and it would indeed necessitate the death penalty according to God's law. I think an illustration might be helpful to understand what the Jews, what I think the Jews were, 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 uh, were thinking in relation to what Jesus said. It seems that the Jews understood what Jesus was saying in a way similar to what many cults think Christians are saying when we confess our belief in the Trinity. So Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, and, and, and Muslims, right? Islam. They all think, at least as I have interacted with uh, members from each of those groups, and as I've studied what they believe, they all think that when Christians confess the doctrine of the Trinity, we are saying that we believe in three distinct gods, right? So we all confess the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they take that confession and they say, wait a second, one plus one plus one does not equal one, it equals three, so if you say the Father is God, and you say the Son is God, and you say the Spirit is God, you are saying that you believe in three gods. Well, that's not Trinitarianism. That's tritheism. Right? That's, that's belief in three-godism. <laughs> and that's not the revelation of the truth about God that's given to us in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, we have a revelation of one being that is God, who eternally exist in three persons. That's not complicated, is it? No mystery there? Of course there's mystery there, right? And that's one of the evidences that proves this was not made up by the imagination of men. No man would have created a doctrine like this. We would have tried to iron it out and work out all the, all the difficult details in relation to it. If it were created by the heart and mind of man, it would not have been left to stand as something that seems so difficult to grasp. Impossible to grasp, to be honest. So, in a way similar to what Jehovah Witnesses or Oneness Pentecostals or, or, or Muslims might understand Christians to be saying when we confess our faith in the Trinity, in a way similar to that, it seems that that's what the Jews, that's how the Jews understood what Jesus was saying. That God the Father is God, and Jesus is distinct from him, but God alongside him. Two gods. So what follows in verses 19 to 30 is Jesus' correction of that misunderstanding. Now, he, he, he corrects that misunderstanding not by denying the reality of his deity, 
But by explaining more fully the nature of his relationship with the Father and showing that that claim is not in conflict with monotheism. This is a very rich passage. And, and I have been, again, struggling to find the right words to communicate these, these truths to you. I, I hope you can follow along with me well enough this morning. All right, but Jesus begins to, to explain and unpack more fully the nature of his relationship with the Father. And he begins in chapter 5, verse 19, first, by emphatically declaring his absolute dependence upon the Father. His absolute dependence upon the Father. You see that in verse 19. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, just, just for a moment, truly, truly, that expression, truly, truly, I say to you, that's unique to the Gospel of John. It occurs 25 times, and almost every single time it appears, it is in connection with a statement that is about to astound and, and, and explode the categories of our thinking. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that prefaces a statement that's going to be very difficult for us to understand almost every single time, just as a parenthesis there. But, but here, it's laying stress and emphasis on, about, on what Jesus is about to say. And you notice what he emphasizes there. Truly, truly, I say to you. And what follows is not a denial of his uh, equality with God the Father, nor is, it a nor is it an expression of his independence from the Father or some kind of autonomous equality alongside the Father. What he emphasizes is his absolute dependence upon the Father in his equality. Probably didn't follow me there, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> what Jesus begins to affirm after making a claim to being equal with God is his absolute dependence upon God the Father. If your mind doesn't feel bent by that, you're not getting it. Let me explain. I, I do mean that Jesus says here, his, he communicates here his absolute dependence on the Father. Look at verse 19. He says, truly, truly, the Son is not able to do anything from himself. That's my translation from the Greek. The Son is not able to do anything from himself. From himself is a very important phrase in this text. That is, the Son is saying here that he cannot act autonomously in anything he does. He cannot act of his own will. He cannot act out of his own power independently from the Father. He is absolutely dependent upon the Father in every single thing he does. He says, I can't do anything unless it is something that I see the Father doing. Something I behold him doing. Now that's a marvelous statement in and of itself, right? Exodus 33:20, no man shall see me and live. And yet here Jesus is saying, oh, I behold, I behold the Father. And what, he, what I see him doing, that's, that's what I can do. That's what I'm allowed. That's what I'm permitted. That's what I am enabled. That's what I move forward doing. Now that makes clear that Jesus is not claiming to have equality with God in a way that is independent from the Father. He declares that in his equality, he can only operate in perfect and absolute unity with what the Father is doing. 
Now, before we go further, <laughs> there's something that I need to uh, at least acknowledge before we move on. This, the majority of you in this room probably won't care a lick about what I'm about to say, okay? But there may be some of you in here who do care and are wondering to yourself where I'm at on this issue. So I'm just going to make this known for a minute before we move on. I, I want to acknowledge that not everyone understands what these verses reveal about the father-son relationship in the exact same way. Not everyone understands what, these, what this statement is saying in the exact same way. Some see what this verse communicates about the son's dependence on the father as being in reference only to the son's incarnate state during his earthly ministry. Okay, so, so this confession that he is absolutely dependent upon the Father and everything he does is only talking about Jesus during his earthly ministry. Right, it's that, it's that Philippians 2.6 expression that though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to, but he emptied himself. That's what people will point to that verse and say that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about his act of emptying himself by taking upon himself the form of a man and humbling himself and becoming a servant under his father. I understand that point, and I, I don't want to uh, pretend that that has no weight to it. That is a very viable option as to what the Son is saying here. However, there are others who see in this statement from the Son a disclosure of the Father-Son relationship as it exists in eternity. This is a deep topic, all right? And I don't have time to get into all of it. But for those of you who are up on that debate and are wondering where I'm at on the issue, let me just say that I follow Augustine's view on this matter. Okay? I, I feel relatively safe saying that, first of all. A pillar of a towering figure of church history to say that I, I, I agree with him on this issue. I think that that's, that's helpful. <laughs> Gives me some, some ease. I agree with what he said. Augustine said that the only way we know anything about the eternal relationships of the persons in the Trinity is from the revelation of those relationships in time. And his point there is that the relationships that manifest in time between Father, Son, and Spirit did not change when the Son of God entered into time. That what we see revealed in time is reflective of what is real and true of the triune relationships in eternity, in, in, inherently within God. I do agree with Augustine on that. And if you want to talk more about that more fully, I won't, I won't take the time here to do that in the pulpit, but man, we can talk, we can talk about that together. Uh, but if you, if you are interested and you're intrigued by what I just said, I would encourage you to go read Augustine's work on the Trinity. It's, that's the title of it, On the Trinity. Go read that, and then we can talk through, uh, talk through that if it's still needed. All right. Everybody okay? All right, here we go. So the son responds, Jesus responds to this 
this question about the exact nature of what he's saying. Is he saying that he's a God alongside of God, but independent from him? Jesus says, no, I am in absolute dependence upon the Father in everything that I do. Can only do what I see the Father doing. But then notice what Jesus goes on to say next. What he says about his relationship with the Father next is, is after declaring his absolute dependence upon the Father, he then emphasizes more strongly his absolute equality with the Father. That seems like a contradiction. I hope you see that. To say that I'm absolutely dependent upon the Father and then to double down on his assertion that he is absolutely equal to the Father... Those two things don't seem to line up perfectly in our minds, at least not in mine. Notice at the end of verse 19, after saying the son can do nothing of himself, but only what he sees the father doing, for, he says, for whatever he does, whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner or in the same way. That last phrase is extremely important. If there was any thought that Jesus was backpedaling, or rolling back his claim to deity when speaking of his dependence upon the Father, this last statement obliterates it. So the Father is, the Father is, is what we see here, the Father is perfectly and completely disclosing himself to the Son. That is, whatever the Father is doing, everything that the Father is doing, he is making that known to the Son. And the Son is beholding everything that the Father is doing in creation. And then Jesus says, I perfectly, completely do everything that I see the Father doing and I do it in the same way that the Father does it. That is the highest assertion of Jesus' divine nature that he has given so far. If you don't see that, I think some words by a man named Albert Barnes might be helpful. I think he captured this pretty well. He said, If one does all that another does, or all that another can do, then there is proof of equality between them. If the Son does all that the Father does, and then like Him, the Son, excuse me, if the Son does all that the Father does, then like Him, the Son must be almighty, must be omniscient, must be all-present, and must be infinite in every perfection. Or in other words, he must be God. See, if you say that I do everything that God does and I do it the exact same way that God does it, in order to, in order to be true to that claim, you have to share in every aspect and every attribute that makes God, God. Or else you cannot do that. You have to be omniscient. You have to be omnipresent. Right? You have to be omnipotent and infinite in every perfection of God if you're going to do what he does in the same way that he does it. So this is what Jesus was claiming in verse 17, by the way. This is the same thing he was saying in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I too am working. He's working, I'm working. What he does, I do. Here he's just doubling down on that assertion. He's saying, oh, and by the way, I do it in the exact same way that he does it. 
So is the Father upholding the universe by his almighty power? Absolutely. Is the Son upholding the universe by his almighty power? Absolutely. (laughs) Is the Father raising the dead and giving life to those who are spiritually divorced from him? Yes. As we're going to see in in the text moving forward, does the Son do the exact same work in bringing sinners to new spiritual life? Yes. You see, what we find here is this, though though there is absolute dependence between son and father as to their persons, there is absolute equality between father and son in their being. I know. Just say amen, and the Lord will give us clarity someday. So whatever is, whatever is said about the son's absolute dependence upon the father in verse 19, it can never in any way diminish the complete and absolute equality the son has with the father according to the divine nature. Is the father self-existent? Does he share in the quality of aseity as God? Yes, he does. Is the son self-existent? Does he share in the quality of aseity as God? Yes, he does. And yet he can confess his absolute dependence upon the person of the Father. We'll get into that more in the rest of the Gospel of John. This is not the last time we're going to see this issue. So we'll talk about it more in the future. Now, I read a commentator on this verse this week, and his words really captivated me. And I, Eric, where are you, brother? I was, I was working on the art of blessed exclusion. This one could not be excluded, all right? <laughs> so be gracious with me, okay? Those of you who don't know, my preaching professor in, in, in in seminary, always spoke of the art of blessed exclusion, learning what to exclude from your sermons so that you're most helpful to people. This wasn't something I felt I could exclude. Right here, we're, we're smack up against the mystery of the Trinity, right? As finite creatures, absolutely unable to comprehend the infinite. And yet within this, we find one of the most glorious realities that we're given as creatures who are looking to God in hope and for salvation. I, I just, I, I, read, I read in a commentator on this verse this week some words that captivated me. I just wanted to read them to you and then unpack them for a second. This is Rodney Whitaker. And you probably don't know who he is. I didn't know who he was. I just started reading his commentary. But he wrote this. He said, this, this statement from Jesus is a mind-boggling claim of completeness. The Son does everything the Father does. That is, not only is everything in Jesus' life reflective of God the Father, but also everything the Father does is reflected in Jesus' life. Read it again. This is a mind-boggling claim of completeness. Jesus, the Son, the Son does everything the Father does. That is, 
Not only is everything in Jesus' life reflective of God the Father, but also everything the Father does is reflected in Jesus' life. So you understand what that's saying? It's one thing to say that Jesus' entire life, that is, everything that he did, was a perfect reflection of the Father. Okay, so, so to say that his life was demonstrating the Father's love, his life was demonstrating the Father's grace, his life was a demonstration of the Father's mercy and his kindness and his patience and his wisdom, and yes, even his wrath. The life of Jesus was a perfect demonstration of the wrath of God. It's one thing to say that Jesus' life perfectly puts on display the character and the nature of God. But it goes way beyond that to say that everything the Father does is reflected in the life of Jesus. And not just partially either, or in a way that's only similar to what the Father does. Now this text, Jesus confesses in this text that in the very same way the Father does his work and in all the works that the Father does, the Son does those exact same works in the exact same way. Now you don't have to be a genius to understand the implications of what Jesus is telling us here. This makes Jesus the perfect Full, complete revelation of God the Father. The only revelation that you and I are ever going to be permitted to see this side of eternity. You want to know who God is? You want to know what he's like? You want to understand the realities of your creator and your maker and the one to whom you are accountable? Then you must look to Jesus. Since John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. Now that tells us there's never been a time in human history when anyone has ever beheld the Father with their own eyes or the very essence of God in and of Himself. This is, again, Exodus 33.20, no man can see God and live. No one can see him in his essential glory and survive. Everything that anyone has ever seen or come to know to be true about God has been mediated to that person through God the Son. We saw that in John chapter 1, right? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus has been the light of men from the very beginning of creation. He wasn't an afterthought. He wasn't plan B. Jesus was always the Father's plan of communicating himself to his creatures. The Son of God was always the mediator between God and man, if you will. But that mediation changed from our end, from what we see, from what we experience in that mediation. That mediation changed as a result of our sin. Where he's now not only the perfect revelation of the Father to us, he's also the perfect remedy in bringing us to the Father. If anyone truly wants to see and to know who God is and what he is like, they have to set their eyes upon Jesus Christ, the Son, in order to see him. Now that means Hindu gods are no gods. That means Islam is not correct. 
That means Judaism has missed out on the full revelation of Yahweh. And their denial of the Son means they have denied everything that God was revealing to them about himself. This is what Jesus says right here in this passage. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father who sent him. He goes on to say later in this book, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you look upon Jesus and you reject what you see, who are you ultimately rejecting? You're rejecting the Father. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if, if you want to see the one who is inherently invisible, then you have to look to the one who has made him visible. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. Right? Now, that's what Jesus does to clarify the misunderstanding of the Jews. He speaks about his absolute dependence upon the Father, his, his, his uh, dependence upon him. Then he speaks of his absolute equality with the Father. And all of that's communicating to the Jewish people a unity between Father and Son as God. Perfect unity. Now from that clarification, verse 20 goes on from clarifying his relationship with the Father to beginning to answer an unspoken question. No one asked Jesus this question, at least not in the context, but for some reason he began answering this unspoken question. And here's the question. Why does the Father disclose himself like this to his incarnate Son? Why do this? Why send the Son into the world? Why call upon God the Son to lay aside his glory and to become a partaker with us in flesh and blood, only then to fully disclose himself before the Son in his, in his incarnate state so that the fullness of the Father would be put on display for us to see in what Jesus does? Why do this? Why send forth the Son to become a man like us? Only so that as a man, the Father would fully, fully unveil himself before his Son. And then his Son would go about doing the works of his Father for us to see. Why do that? Well, in verse 20, Jesus answers that in two ways. The first reason is the most glorious reason. Why, does the, why the gospel? Why Jesus? Why do this? Why, why orchestrate things in such a way that we can only come to the Father through Jesus? Why? Why orchestrate things in such a way that the only knowledge any of us will ever have of God is, the, is what comes through Jesus? Well, the first answer that Jesus gives to us is in verse 20, which is the Father's love for his Son. That's why he does this, because of his love for his son. Verse 20 starts with a four. And do you know what a four is there for? It's there because it's reaching back to what has just been said prior to that. Right? It's, and, and four is explanatory. So what that means is what Jesus is saying right now is explaining what he has just said in the verse prior, previous. 
So in verse 19, what is, from verse 19, what is Jesus beginning to explain in verse 20? And we see, what is the father doing in verse 19? That's the question. Well, he's showing his son all that he himself is doing so that his son can do all that the father is doing. He's disclosing himself before the son. That's what he's doing. Why is he doing that? Verse 20 tells us it is because of the father's love for the son. See, the reason the father discloses all of himself to the son and shows him all that he is doing is because he loves the son. And if you don't get this, you will never understand Christianity. If you don't understand this, you are not going to understand one of the main lessons that the Father is teaching us through the life of Christ. In love, the Father fully discloses himself to his Son, even as his Son is in his state of humiliation, even as he has entered into his incarnate state, this state where he has taken on flesh and is dwelling among us as a man. The father fully discloses himself to the son so that through the life of his son, his love for his son would be put on display for all the world to see. All right. Maybe it helps if I don't allow myself to be so vocally excited. The ultimate meaning, and you got to get it, the ultimate meaning, meaning behind everything that the son does and everything that he taught, the point and the purpose behind every miracle, behind every single act of kindness, behind every expression of grace, behind every rebuke that, that the son gave to sinful humanity, behind everything that the son did was the love of the father for his son. In other words, it, the purpose here in orchestrating things to fall out this way where, where, where the son has become man and the father has this perfect communion with the son where nothing is hidden from the eyes of his son. Everything is all out there and on the table and the son can behold everything that the father's doing and the son joins with the father in doing everything that the father is doing. The whole purpose behind all of that is to single out Jesus Christ as the one who is unique in the eyes of the father. Right? This, is, this is why the heavens split open and the Father spoke down from heaven at the baptism of Jesus saying, this is my beloved Son. He's the one in whom I'm well pleased. That, that flavor, that, 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 that conviction, that, that attitude of the Father towards the Son, that the relationship between the two, that is the purpose behind everything that's manifest in the Son's life. To show that the son is the one who is well-pleasing in the eyes of his father. All right, so the reason behind all of this disclosure of the father to the son in his incarnate state and then putting that on display in his life is so that the uniqueness of the son in the eyes of the father would be put on display for everyone to see and so that the son would be exalted in our eyes as the peculiar object of the father's love. That's the point. You are not the object of God's love. Do you understand that? 
The gospel is not primarily about God's love for you. The gospel is about God's love for his son. The gospel is about God's desire, the father's desire to see the glory of his son magnified. And you are a part of that, but you are not the focal point of that. God's love, God loves you. God has, God has desired, he has decreed, he has chosen to elect you to be a special object of his saving, redeeming love. And you never need to let your heart let loose of that. You need to hold fast to the reality that God is compassionate and he's gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's made you as a believer in Jesus an object of that love. This unshakable, undeterrable love that will reach its final end, your glorification in heaven with him. God loves you. But his love for you is not the primary motivation behind anything he sent his son to do in this world. It was all about his love for his son. I mean, this is, this is, just, this is just showing us in, in, in action the truth we've already seen in John 1.18, right? John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time, but, but the only begotten Son who is who's where? Who is in the bosom of the Father. What does it mean to be in the Father's bosom? That's rich language, right? It is. It's pointing to the, the, the intimacy and the closeness of the relationship between Father and Son. And there is not another... There is not another object of that kind of intimate love between or with the Father than is seen in the Son. This is the same language of Isaiah 42.1 where God calls us to behold his servant whom he's chosen or in whom he delights. His chosen one in whom his soul delights. There it is. His chosen one in whom his soul delights. That's talking about Jesus. That's talking about God the Son in Isaiah 42.1. That's rich language that's designed to show us the love and the affection that the Father has for His Son and to help us understand that if you could ever find the center of God's eternal being, that is where the Son would be. In all of His infinite fullness, being held, cradled, being... being, being uh, uh, man, I, I almost used a word that I think would be blasphemous. But being... Uh, oh man, Lord, help me. being enveloped in his father's affections, eternal affections. That's where you would find the son. So this is, this is one reason why the father fully disclosed himself to the son in this way, even in his incarnation, was so that this fellowship of love and communion between the father and the son would be put on display in his life. And so that all the world would see that to the father, there is no one who compares with his son. All right, we need to run quickly. But there's another aspect to that that we don't have time to get into today, but we will get into it as we move forward in the gospel. Another reason God the Father sent his son into the world was to bring that loving fellowship between father and son to sinners like you and me and to welcome us into it. This is, this is uh, John 17, 23, right, where, where Jesus says that the father has loved his disciples with the same love with which he's loved, to, loved the son. 
The very same love that the Father has for the Son is the, is the love that the Father has chosen to place upon his Son's disciples. The Son brought that fellowship and that love of the Father into the world so that you and I would also be made partakers of that love. And that's a glorious reality. Like I said, we're going to unpack that more fully in the future, but something to hold on to. All right. Last point here. That's one reason why the Father orchestrated things this way. Why the gospel? Why have it play out the way it did? Well, it was to magnify the love of the Father for his Son. There's a second reason that Jesus gives in verse 20. It's at the end of the verse. The Father discloses himself to his Son, not only so that the world would see the Father's love for his Son, but also so that the world would marvel over what it sees. Verse 20, the father loves the son. The father shows the son all that he himself is doing. And then Jesus says, and he will show him greater works than these so that you may marvel. Now we're going to get into what those greater works are. The, the greater works that Jesus is talking about here, we're going to get into that next week. But I just want to connect that last phrase to the context here. Why does God the Father enable the incarnate Son to behold everything that the Father is doing? Why did the Father send forth the Son into the world in order to do the works of God in the world? Well, not only to put the love for the Son on display, but also so that you and I would marvel as we behold the Son. That is, that we would be, I don't know if you know what it means to marvel, Unfortunately, when I hear that word, I just think of some stupid movies <laughs> right? or comics. Right? What does it mean to marvel? Oh, it means to be astounded. It means to be taken captive by something that you see. It means to be left breathless, speechless over what you are beholding. So that when we look at the sun... The Father's intention behind what He is putting on display in the Son is that it would leave us utterly speechless and lost in worship. That our spirits would be startled out of the lull and the dreariness of living life in this fallen world. Don't we all experience that? You, you walk through this world and you just feel bogged down by everything going on around you. You feel hopeless. You feel despair. You feel like you can't go on. I do. Maybe you don't. You need to share with me your secret. No, we, we feel weighted down by, by the struggles of life in this world. We experience trials we weren't anticipating that, that have altered our lives for the, the, the rest of our future. And we struggle with that. We struggle with understanding how the love of God is being displayed towards us in the various things that we suffer through in this life. If God loved me, then why would he let this happen to me? Well, I don't have all the answers for that, but what I can say is that what God intends for us to take away from what we see in Jesus is a wonder and an awe and a worship that compensates for everything we go through in this life. Have you ever wondered why believers, I, I remember seeing this picture of 
of a, a, a believing father holding his decapitated daughter's seven-year-old body. Have you ever wondered what strengthens someone to endure a trial like that and continue being faithful to God in the midst of it? Well, God is sovereign. Why did he let this happen? Could he not have delivered my seven-year-old daughter? Let me tell you what, if God doesn't have power enough to do something like that, then he's not God. You guys know I've, our family has had to bury a son. Right? What sustains you through something like that? What, what causes you, when you go through cancer, when you feel racked by disease, what enables you, what gives you strength to keep being faithful to the Lord? It's having a greater vision of the glory of God revealed in Christ. That's what strengthens you, and that alone. Where you see Jesus as worth, as worth it all. Where with Paul you confess, I... I I count everything to be rubbish in comparison with knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the purpose behind everything that the Father has revealed to us through his Son. It's that we would be aroused out of the darkness of our depravity that warps our understanding of reality and of life and of God and that we would be awakened to see the glory of the Father's love revealed in his Son. And that we would respond with awe-filled worship. My friend, if you don't find your own heart marveling over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are missing true Christianity. This is why we lack power in our witness to the world. This is why we are so impotent in our fight against sin and against the desires of the flesh. This is why the church seems so weak and pathetic because we're not seeing what we must see in Christ that will enable us to do all those things faithfully. Why is there division? Why is there factionalism in the church? Because we are distracted from this one glorious view, the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. The more we see that together, the more united we will be together. All these trivial matters just fall to pieces. And we finally get busy doing the work that God's called us to do as a church body. I'll, I'll say it again. Being a Christian is not about adopting a set of life principles. And I want you to understand that. Being a Christian is not making a decision to live a moral life. Being a Christian is not turning over a new leaf. It's not getting your act together. It's not trying to be a better person. No, being a Christian is about being awakened out of your spiritual dullness and the darkness of your spiritual death so that by the grace and power of God minister to your soul through the Holy Spirit, you are not only enabled to see the wonder of Jesus Christ, but you are left in wonder over what you are now enabled to see. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. If you want that, there are plenty of other places called churches that will, that will make you very happy and feel very good in their comfortable seats. We keep pews for a reason. <laughs> I'm kidding. 
God's intention is that we would find ourselves captivated by Christ, that we would love him and that we would long for him and that we would crave a deeper and more intimate knowledge of him. If that's not true of us, then I'll tell you, we have not yet reached the point of spiritual life and maturity that the Father has called us to. We may not even have begun the Christian life. This is where the Christian life begins, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. What what does God do to bring about spiritual life in a person? He speaks the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ into that sinner's heart. He speaks it into the darkness of your heart so that you now see with your soul and eyes of faith what you could not see before. That's where the Christian life begins. I want you also to know that that's where the Christian life is going to end. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus is coming one day. And yes, he is coming to deal out retribution and the judgment of God upon everyone who refuses to bow the knee to his lordship. But at the same time, he is coming so that he might be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. When Jesus splits the sky and his glory comes with with unparalleled power, all of Christ's people will be left marveling and lost in wonder and worship over what we see. Our Lord has finally come. What we've heard with ears of faith, we now see with our own eyes. And we rejoice. We will marvel at the glory of Christ. That's where the Christian life ends and continues on for all eternity. And beloved, in between those two days, that is also what will sustain you to live the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's by beholding Christ's glory as in a mirror that the Holy Spirit does his work of transforming us from one degree of glory to another. So you don't, as I said, you don't need five principles for a better Christian life. You don't need ten steps towards greater faithfulness. What you need and what you and I must have is a fresh glimpse of Christ's glory. What we need is a renewal and a revival from the Holy Spirit that enables us to marvel over what God the Father has revealed in His Son. And until we have that, we are not living the life that God intends for us to live. All right, so my my two final exhortations. Some of you in this room have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about marveling over Jesus. You've never tasted it. Your heart's cold towards the reality that I'm speaking of, and and though you might be able to imagine what that's like, you've never known it for yourself. Well, my friend, this is where God's will for you begins. By coming to Jesus and beholding his glory and being converted to him. Like I said, not turning over a new leaf, not getting your life in order, but simply coming and bowing before God the Son in awe-filled worship of what you see. There's only one way for that to happen, and that's if you continue looking to what God has revealed to us in his Son. The revelation of God that he's preserved for us in the Scriptures, that's a revelation of what he has shown to us through the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are you called upon to do if if you've never tasted the glory of Christ? What should you do? 
Well, you should follow the instructions of 2 Peter 1.19. You should run to this book. And you should keep looking at what God has revealed in his word until the day dawns and the morning star of Christ's glory arises in your heart. That, you only have two options. You either run after Christ until he assures you that you're saved or you stop and you perish. You settle for some lesser thing, whether it's lesser things of the world or a lesser form of Christianity, an empty shell that, that, is, that is a reflection of a form of godliness but has no power in it. You just keep running after the Lord until, until you find him, until you know in your own life these kinds of realities that God has spoken to us about in his word. Others of you in this room... You know exactly what it means to be in awe of Christ's glory, but maybe, maybe you knew that in greater ways in the past than you do now. Very often I find myself in that state. What, what do we do? Where do we go? Well, first of all, we need to make sure we don't make the mistake that many people do make. We need to make sure we don't settle for less than the ideal Christian life. We don't want to settle for a form of Christian existence that is less than what Christ has purchased for us with his blood. We want to rest in his promises. We want to trust in his grace, but we want to keep pursuing his presence. That's the command of Psalm 105. Seek the Lord and his face. Seek his presence continually. Psalm 27. What does God say to us? Seek my face. What does our soul reply back to God as his children? Your face, O oh Lord, I seek. And what is our plea? That's Psalm 27, verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. Jesus promised in John 14, 21 and John 14, 23, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And we will be loved by the Father, and the Father and Son will come to us and make their abode with us. They will come and dwell with us. If we don't know the presence and the power of God's glory in the way that we, we have tasted before and we are longing for it now, there's only one way to get there, guys, and that's to set our feet in the, in the path of God's ways and to bend our will to God's will and to seek his face until we find him until he renews our vision and experience of his grace in Christ Jesus. All right, so, so, so everything in John 5 and all that we've seen about Jesus and all that we will see of him moving forward is designed by God to do one thing. It's to bring you and me to the point where we marvel over his son. That's God's will for us. And may he give us grace and strength to keep pursuing the son until we see him as clearly as we can unto the day of glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would help us marvel over your son. Help us see the purpose and the point behind all you revealed in him. Help us worship you with pure hearts, Lord. We bow before you in his name. Amen.